sensitive. Our egos are very sensitive. I was saying to my wife, who is a writer, that uh, most writers, in fact, there are only two writers I know who uh, do not have a certain attitude that they could have and should have been more successful. And finally, that they're not appreciated, that particularly their best work has never been appreciated. The two that I know who do not have that, one won the Pulitzer Prize, and the other had the uh, biggest motion picture of the year, which he wrote and directed, so... Okay. <laughs> the rest of us were complaining all the time. I, was, I spent time uh, just a week or so ago with a, a good friend on the East Coast who, uh, whose first novel sold three million copies. But the others didn't sell three million, you know? So you know how that feels. Like, you know, you had the big hit, and then after that, you know, you write five more novels, and none of them sell a million, and, you know, you feel like nobody appreciates you. So just to let you know, that's how we, how we roll. Uh, and, of course, as a Buddhist, I have no ego, which is really fortunate because it just saves me from all that. Uh, this, of course, is the new book, Living Kindness, which is r- really underappreciated. <laughs> well, what I've discovered is that if I put the words Buddhism and the 12 steps in the title, it sells. So I'm thinking about writing like the Buddhism and the 12 Steps cookbook and see how that does, you know. I mean, you know, people just search. They go, oh, but, oh okay, I need that, you know, because that will probably help me stay sober, like, you know, and meditate. And actually, that's not that bad an idea. If anybody has any recipes, they want Because I'm not writing it. Anyway, my recipes are like throw everything in a pot and eat it later. All right, so uh, what else? Oh, it's, it's uh, Friday the 13th, so, you know. But as Buddhists, we're not uh, superstitious either, unless you're from Thailand, and then you're in trouble, right? Except, except they probably don't have the 13 thing, but they have other ones. Anyway, bless them, and us, and everybody else. Uh, don't, don't leave anybody out, you know. We're very open-minded, so... Uh, I'm not going to be here next month. I'm sorry to say. I hear a little bit of feedback. See, it's the low end, Sarah. That's getting like if you knew how to just turn down like the low mid range on the thing, that would be the way to fix that. Very very wide edge. I like it. Yeah. Hey, baby. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the feedback is not very whitish. I don't. Yeah. You, know, you hear what I'm saying? So, um, see, and if I hit certain notes, I'm a musician, what can I tell you? I pick up on these things. Um, So I'll ask you to maybe turn off uh, your cell phone in case you have one. Nobody here has one. Buddhists are also very poor. I've noticed. Or they're, I mean, I'm sorry, they're not attached to possessions. So, um, It's not the microphone. It's the way it's EQ'd. You should actually just turn the volume down a little bit. 
just a little bit if you don't know how to do anything else. Do you know how to do that? Doesn't Andy know how to do it? Andy, do you know how to run the EQ on the PA? Just bring down the low mid. Bring down this area. Sorry. So uh, I am known as being annoying, so some people find me annoying, particularly family members. Um, so, yeah, I won't be here next month. Uh, Walt Opie will be here of uh, the Berkeley um, Dharma and Recovery Group that you might know. He started some years ago. I don't think it's running these days, but uh, he's got a... Uh, actually, his daughter might is almost a year old now, but he's got an infant, so... I find that people with small children have a great deal of wisdom to share. <laughs> they do, you know, because it connects you to something. That's, I know. See, like people don't laugh at my jokes, and then they do laugh at the things that aren't jokes. I'm serious. It's true. <sighs> my niece, who has a young son named Kabir, sent me a video. I had been to visit... And apparently I have a vocal tick, which her son picked up, the two-year-old. So she has it, she's in the bath. I could show you the video, but we can't, if we could project it. He's in the bathtub, and Sarah says to Kabir, what does Uncle Kevin say? And Kabir goes, ay, 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 ay. <laughs> and I'm like, what, do I say that? And then all week, all I've noticed myself going is, ay, 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 ay. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do that. Wow. Weird. Uh, that was connected to something, but I can't remember what now. So. Did you fix it? Well, you turned it down. I'll say that for it. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Good. All right. I'll stop torturing you. And we can meditate. You can torture yourself. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was, a, that was a joke, and that was a pretty good joke, I have to admit. I should write that one down. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right, then. Mm. So... Just beginning by bringing your attention into your body. You can close your eyes or you can leave your eyes open, just lowering your gaze, however you're comfortable. But starting just by feeling how how you're holding your body. And you might adjust your posture if it feels like you should. We want to sit in a way that we can be very still. That we can relax and stay alert.
what do you notice first when you begin a period of meditation? A part of practice is to guide the attention. But part of it is also to just see what captures the attention. So to just notice what stands out in your experience as you begin sitting is one way to just arrive, arriving in the body, arriving in this space, arriving in this moment. Most of us have had to travel for just a little while to get here. And there can be that sense of movement still with us. Sit down to meditate. We notice energy. The mind is busy, the body is alive and energetic. We don't have to change that or fix that. Practice itself will help us to settle. This principle of mindfulness that what we want to do is be aware of whatever is happening. This is the first principle. It's very easy to forget that principle in the effort to become calm or peaceful or whatever we're striving for in our meditation. But if something's going on and we're trying to ignore it or override it, we're already in conflict with reality, with the way things are. So the starting point is observing and accepting how things are right now. We can then apply an intention to settle and be more present. But not as a correction to how things are or an effort to control. More like uncovering the calm that's beneath the surface that's actually already there orienting towards that rather than towards the busyness of mind and body.
So we use awareness of the breath to reorient this way. The breath is a neutral experience, usually. It's a subtle experience. To pay attention to it requires a certain subtlety in awareness, subtlety of mind. The more careful our attention, the more subtle that awareness becomes. Awareness of breath means specifically to feel the actual sensations of breathing, either the touch of the air at the nostrils or the movement of the belly in and out. This specificity, again, helps the mind to become more focused, more calm. But there is no switch to turn on calm. So even as we incline towards awareness of breath, the mind very often continues to wander off. When we notice, we acknowledge that and come back. time after time, moment by moment. This moment of noticing the wandering mind and coming back to the breath is another critical turning point in meditation. At that moment, it's easy to fall into self-judgment or criticism. thinking that we're failing at the practice of meditating. 
this is just another idea, another aversive thought. So we try to learn to be more neutral in that moment, to take it as an opportunity. First, an opportunity to see where the mind goes, what are those habitual pathways of thought. And an opportunity to see how the mind works and how it affects the body. Noticing how you feel when you're thinking. And then it's an opportunity to come back. Come back to the breath, to the present moment. Strange to say that for many of us, perhaps most of us, our most difficult relationship is our relationship to our own mind. To see how that works. Oh. We create struggles for ourselves internally. One of the key insights in this practice gives us the opportunity to change, to let go, to not believe our thoughts, to not struggle with our own mind.
Um, so we usually take a couple questions now, and then, then we'll have a break, and I'll give a talk after the break. But uh, I'd just like to see if there are uh, questions about meditation practice uh, specifically, or really anything, but, um, and if there was anything in the guided meditation that you had questions about, or anything just in your practice. It's a question about um, guided meditation versus just completely silent meditation because yeah. I find for, for myself of starting with the silent and then having some type of guided meditation somewhere in the middle um, is helpful mm-hmm. for me. Um, I'm just wondering how... Because part part of that is in due to just the, kind of the monkey mind that it feel like I kind of need this this crutch to help me really um, for the mind not to wander too far, and I'm not sure if that's just fairly common, you know, or there's <laughs> you know yeah. many shades of gray, or, or how long. Is you know does one use guided meditation to yeah. kind of jump off that boat to just to have yeah. it, just a long silent meditation? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, um, I, I think of uh, guided meditation. The function of guided meditation to first of all be a way to learn what you're supposed to do. So, so not just um, not just something that in the moment is trying to help you to get to a place, but rather sort of uh, a guidance as to how you actually do this if you are on your own. You know, so so it's like an instruction as well as a um, sort of an experiential. Uh, um, well, guidance, I guess, you know, exp- guiding you toward an experience or trying to help to evoke an experience. But, but to me, the primary purpose is the more the educational part. Like, how do you meditate? Because when you read about meditating, it's kind of like, okay, now close the book and try to remember what you read, and you're trying to not think or whatever. You know, you're trying to pay attention to your breath, and it's like, what was I? And then at the same time, you're trying to remember what you just read. It sort of doesn't work that well. I mean, it, it's okay. I mean, it's a useful tool. but So I think that as you're sitting and you're hearing the words and you're trying to act on the words as you hear them, it's a good, a very direct way of kind of getting the instruction about how, how to do this. Um, that being said, there's nothing wrong with 
I mean, I wouldn't call it a crutch uh, so much. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with uh, using guided meditations in order to help you to get to a place of kind of settling, and, um, and as you said, like to kind of snap you out of the the busyness of the mind to kind of remind you to come back. I uh, personally lean towards training. Uh, training yourself to be able to practice in silence because it's more you're more independent in that way and you're, it's more internalized that the, the teachings are internalized so you're not sort of waiting to you know to hear a voice or to always be um, depending on that um, because you know because ultimately this practice we want to be able to not only do silent meditation on our own, but we also want to kind of have this uh, this orientation towards mindfulness to be something that's with us throughout the day, not even just in silence. So it's kind of like to internalize the instruction is really helpful. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think just, uh, you know, to use it, uh, you know, I think you just have to judge for yourself when it's, uh, if it's when it's useful, um, uh, so I guess I'll say I think it's useful to start to work without a guided meditation once you se- once you feel that you understand to a great extent what the practice is, what it what's involved in at least on a mechanical or systematic level, and sort of see then uh, where you are. You know, kind of. Oh well, how you know? How can I? How well can I handle this right now? Um, and, and work with that a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's so many resources now with all the apps and everything that, uh, which is great. I mean, it just makes meditation so accessible. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's something you want to be able to do on your own. So, thank you, though. That's a good question. Okay. Thanks. Um, so, there's this idea when, like, a thought comes up, right, that I'm supposed to just like observe it non-judgmentally and watch it like float down the stream or whatever but I feel like it's actually like a raft that I can't help but like hop on, you know? Yeah. And there's this concept of like, and I, and I know another, you know, something I've also heard is like just return to the breath, right? Like go back to just observing what's happening with that. Um, but that then feels, you described like not creating like conflict within, yeah. right? So I... Yeah. I don't want to follow it, but I don't want to be like, no, bad thought, come right. back to the breath. Yeah. So what is that process like for you or, or others, like dealing well, with the observing of thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, once when you realize that you are thinking, you're already on the raft. Okay. <laughs> and the trick is to get back to shore without drowning and you know without getting caught in the rapids you know let's not go too far with this metaphor but um, and 
And so it's a really good... I mean, the idea that we can, like, observe our thoughts, it's really... Most of the time we're not observing our thoughts. What we're doing is we're remembering what we were just thinking. Okay? Mm. Only when you are very, very concentrated, and this usually only happens to me when I'm on a retreat, do I actually kind of, am I actually able to have enough strength of mindfulness that a thought can arise and I can kind of recognize it coming? And pretty much when that happens, I'm able to let it go most instantaneously. So, so really what we're doing is we're remembering that we were just having a thought, okay? Or, or we're realizing, oh, I've been thinking this <laughs> because the thought, as you say, continues even as I kind of recognize it. So f- first of all, just that, uh, it, it's just a really important moment, as I was saying, to notice how you react to the realization that you're on that raft. You know, do you get, because a lot, you know, a lot of people take the instruction to be, you're not supposed to be thinking. And if you're thinking, you're doing it wrong. Bad meditator, you know. And, and so it's like, you know, you're already like losing, right? It's like, I'm thinking, oh God, like, did anybody notice, you know? Or, and, you know, obviously that's not a helpful way to operate, and yet it's, it's very much the, how we are trained, you know, our conditioning in terms of learning a skill, you know, we, you know, are always trying to correct ourselves, and we kind of, you know, push ourselves and judge ourselves, and, and, and that works when you're trying to, you know, learn how to do some pr- sort of practical activity. But with meditation... It doesn't work because it's counter to the whole point of meditation, which is to not be in conflict with anything. And so a a really important, and and yes, asking me how how I've worked with this, you know, I, I found early in my practice that I was working so hard and battling so hard with my thoughts that I was creating more of a problem than I was, you know, up getting benefit. And so I kind of quit. I quit meditating, like, as a thing that I was doing. And I just kind Now, this happened to be in the middle of a long retreat, so my mind was already kind of quiet, but I was still, like battling with the no- the noises. I mean, kind of quiet is still not that quiet, you know. I was still kind of in this battle, and and I just kind of quit. And when I quit, actually everything kind of opened up, and, and it was much quieter. Now, in your daily practice, in our daily lives, and, and I will say, you know, in my daily life, my daily practice now, it doesn't, that doesn't happen when I, when I quit, it just the thoughts kind of keep coming, uh, but my sense, and you know, maybe this isn't, you know, I'm just one, you know, humble meditator. Uh, my sense is that even if my thoughts are just 
flowing along and they, and, and, I can't, and they don't seem to stop, that that's better than fighting with them. And that really what happens is that if I sit still, if I take my posture, I sit still, and I do, try to be with the breath to some degree or another, that however busy my mind is, there's a gradual calming that happens. And at the end of a period of meditation, I can tell that I've been meditating, even though I know that I spaced out a lot of the time. So it seems like the choice is either I space out and don't worry about it, or I space out and I get frustrated about it. I'm just not a good enough meditator to be able to stop myself from spacing out. I don't... Maybe there are some people here who are better than me. I don't mean, I mean, that's kind of a joke. I mean, being a good meditator, it's just even the idea, it's not a helpful idea, you know, being good or bad. It's not, and, and so again, it's like this orientation. It's very difficult to step out of our normal orientation towards doing something as being good or bad. You know, or and judging levels, and with meditation, that's just not a helpful orientation. And so it's kind of like stepping out of that whole view. And in, of course, in the beginning, we can't just step out of it. The only way we can get out of it is to keep seeing it, which means you have to keep seeing that moment when you realize you're thinking and see your annoyance, see your resistance, see your wish to not be there. And let go of that. Don't worry about the thought. Let go of your conflict with the thought. If you can do that, you won't have a, a problem in your meditation. And that's, you know, that's, the, that's what I kind of said in the middle of that meditation. This is the key moment in practice is when you, when you realize you're thinking, what do you do? What, it's not even, I mean, it's partly what you do, but it's more how do you react? And this is kind of, to me, this is a lot of the training of meditation is training my reaction to, to noticing my thought so that what I'm trying to do is train myself to have a, a wise response to that. And that a wise response is one that is compassionate and forgiving and understanding. I understand that my mind is conditioned to think and that that thinking is causing discomfort and it's unpleasant so I will benefit from letting go and that I can't control all of that so I need to be forgiving of myself and compassionate towards the fact that it's it's painful on this very subtle level most of the time but it's like it's uncomfortable you realize wow this is the human condition so that's the wisdom, right? Stepping back and realizing, oh, this struggle that I'm having with my own thoughts, every human being on the planet like, is in this place. Most of them don't have the struggle because they don't try to not think. <laughs> but I know that they're all agitated by their own thoughts because thoughts are inherently caught up in grasping and aversion. That's the way most thoughts are. So you know, these six, seven billion people on the planet are walking around in this conflict with themselves, right? With themselves. And, uh, and so that, to me, is the, that's the 
thing that we're trying to break uh, as much as anything. There's much more, of course, that can come from meditation when, when we break that and we go deeper in, into that stillness and insight that comes through it. But just breaking that habit uh, is a huge, a huge change, a huge breakthrough. So that's okay. I'll take one more question. You're following on that? This is kind of the other end of the spectrum. What are your thoughts on sleep creeping into your meditation? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a very natural, uh, as you say, it's kind of the other end. There's the agitation, like, struggling with yourself and then there's kind of like surrendering and relaxing and letting go and then just clunk you know so the I mean it's one of the five hindrances the five hindrances to meditation that the Buddha outlines so it's clearly not helpful because we're trying to be awake you know in a in a metaphorical way as well as in a literal way so um you know that's much more of a a practical question. You know that that uh, we want to you know sit at a time of day when we can be alert, um, notice when our energy starts to flag, and try to you know sit up a little bit more, kind of maybe take some deeper breaths, kind of make sure your posture is strong. You know, sitting back on the couch with your feet up isn't the best way to stay alert. So uh, it's one of the reasons that people sit on meditation cushions is uh, it's not that comfortable, you know. And uh, it's, I mean, you can sit in a way that's comfortable enough, but it's not painful. But uh, but to be too kind of cozy, you know. So uh, we just kind of work with those. Uh, elements of it, posture, um, energy. Um, you know, there's certain states we can get into that's, that can be very pleasant, too. And they're kind of these dull, you know, dreamy states. And sometimes people think that they're really getting into a deep meditation and when that happens. And uh, it's actually usually, you know, more like a, a, a dream state, you know, a sleep edge of sleep. So it's really something to, to try to counter as much as you can without yeah, getting angry with yourself. Right? Yeah. All right, so let's take a little break and we'll come back and we're going to talk a little bit step four tonight. It's, well, it's, it's April. I'm just following the step to the month. It's not my fault, man.
So just on a, uh, a business note, um, I have turned over the selling of these two books out here to Spirit Rock, uh, so you get them out of the bookstore now if, if you're interested in them, the workbook and the uh, and living kindness. That's why they're not out on the table there. So I was reviewing... Step four in my mind. So funny to hear people like make a like kind of oh or what was that groan when I said step four? Uh, I mean, I understand. Oh really? Oh, is that why? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm sorry, I haven't been to a meeting lately, so you know that's why I have to come to here. Um, well, believe me, this is going to be different. <laughs> I'm not going to say better, but it is going to probably be better. But anyway, um, as, as you know, if you've read my work, you know, I kind of have this English major uh, approach to the steps sometimes of just kind of looking at individual words. and uh, So I kind of get into that tonight. So the step four says, uh, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And that, uh, I mean, I think the word that stands out is moral, but if not for you, that's what I'm going to kind of talk about tonight and what that means in a Buddhist context. Because, first of all, I think from, from a, a broad view of mindfulness applied to this step, we could kind of, if we, if we took out moral and just said, made a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves, that's sort of a description of what mindfulness meditation is, just looking inside and, and what, looking at your mind, looking at your reactive patterns, your emotional patterns, um, your, your, your state of mind, your mind states, your, all the stuff that we see. So I, I often kind of equate uh, inventory with just mindfulness or what's called uh, investigation of states. That's the kind of formal term, which is investigation of states. The, uh, developing that quality of investigation is actually one of the seven factors of enlightenment, which, which I noticed I was looking in the workbook to see what I said about step four. Uh, and that's one of the things that I suggest taking an inventory of is the seven factors, which is looking again, well, not again, but looking at the flip side of this, you know, sort of moral inventory and looking at uh, kind of a spiritual inventory from a positive view, because uh, this is one of the things that I think gets underemphasized in traditional step work is, is taking a, a complete inventory, both of our positive and negative, not just the, not just the negative qualities. Uh, and, and it is one of the kind of beefs I have, if you will, with uh, maybe a spirit rock, I should call it a tofu, but that doesn't have the same sound. Um, <laughs> there's people who are laughing, so I, you know, I, 
Okay, you don't, you know, it doesn't have to work for everybody. Um, but uh, that, you know, if if the, I think that sometimes the inventory process and, and a lot of the of step work can become so negatively focused that um, I, I think it can be counterproductive. And, and, and I recognize that, you know, it's a really important starting point for addicts because clearly we're pretty deluded and, and need to learn about uh, how we've harmed people and how we've harmed ourselves uh, and really be honest about that. But, you know, if you're a depressive, which a lot of addicts are, and all you're doing is focusing on your negative qualities, that can you know, also have a really destructive effect on your, on your mind states. Uh, I don't know why I'm laughing at the phrase mind states, but uh, just very dry technical term, but, uh, but uh, it is one that we find in Buddhism. So, so I like the idea of balancing, really trying to have a, a balanced inventory. And and again, one of the things that I often talk about in inventory is the five hindrances, desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. And essentially, I don't think we see them as moral. You know, and, and, and I think it's, it's beneficial at times to, to take, step out of the moral inventory view and look with a less... Sort of, because morality kind of can can suggest a kind of judgmental attitude, like I'm immoral, and and um, you know, Dharma practice, mindfulness practice, really isn't, as we talked about already, isn't about sort of uh, making those kind of judgments, but just observing clearly what's going on. <coughs> so, uh, all that said. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how a couple of Buddhists, Buddhist teachers, wise people, um, how they talk about morality on the on the Buddhist path. So this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's little book on the Noble Eightfold Path, and, and I would have to say that it's the most. Uh, like for the word count of the book, it's like the most power-packed uh, word, word by word. Or you know, not saying this properly, but you know, there's a heck of a lot in here. This is this is like eating the finest dark chocolate. You know, you just have a couple bites because you know if you try to eat the whole bar, you're like, oh my god, that's like I can't. Get that down. Just let me take it like... So, the the Eightfold Path, right? The Buddha's steps, if you will. These are his instructions on how to find freedom from suffering. And so, uh, the steps are traditionally divided into three sections. The section of morality, the section of meditation, the section of of wisdom. And the, the three elements that are covered under the section of morality are right speech, 
right action and right livelihood. The term right action, though, refers to the five precepts. So it's not just a general term, but it refers to living by not killing, not stealing, not harming sexually, not harming verbally, and not using intoxicants. And those are the five basic precepts that Buddhists are meant to live by. So there's just a couple of sentences here that I want to read, but we could we may spend the whole evening just on these sentences. Though the principles laid down in this section, this section of the Eightfold Path, restrain immoral actions and promote good conduct, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. I'll read the whole thing and then go back. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action, but primarily as aids to mental purification. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddhist teaching, and its importance cannot be underrated. But in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, final deliverance from suffering. So, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, final deliverance from suffering. So, that means, if we go back, they're not prescribed merely as guides to action, but primarily as aids to mental purification. So, if they are aids to mental purification and their purpose is final deliverance from suffering, then that would suggest that mental purification leads to deliverance from suffering. Uh, Of course, mental purification in itself is a term that might take a little bit of parsing. Uh, And I'm not sure how much I want to parse that right now. But... I want to go back to this basic principle here. (coughs) Excuse me. That the ultimate purpose of morality in, in the Eightfold Path is not so much ethical as spiritual. So this resonates for me, particularly because I've started saying something very similar, which is that I see sobriety as a spiritual state. And what I mean by that is that it's not just you stop drinking and using, right? But that there's something more to it, right? Step one is the one where we quit, And there's the other 11. And those are the ones that are cultivating our spiritual condition. One of my beefs, (laughs) one of my pet peeves, is with these addiction researchers who are trying to find, you know, the drug, of course, that will 
cure you from addiction. Just take this every day and you won't be an addict. You know? <laughs> but uh, the, the irony of that aside, what they miss is that what they think addiction is, is that you're taking this drug or drinking every day. Or that it's you know that you're stuck on this with this uh, this uh, physical substance abuse problem, and we know I think that that's only the start. That solving that problem, uh, critical as it is to the process of recovery, is not by any means recovery. You know that there's a whole lot more work to do than that. And that's the spiritual work. So I would even argue that step four is about this in the same way that Bhikkhu Bodhi is saying the precepts are about our spiritual condition, not about ethics. I don't think step four is about becoming a good person. Or, you know, even... Even the amends process, you know, yeah, there's this primary purpose in it of trying to clean up past actions, trying to understand past actions, but I think it's ultimately about mental purification. You know? and, and we could say, uh, you know, not just mental but bodily purification in terms of the way we behave, because what, where do the 12 steps lead to? They lead to a spiritual awakening, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's where they get to, right? Whereas Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the Eightfold Path gets you to final deliverance, or what we usually call enlightenment, which is another term for spiritual awakening. So are the steps, is the function of the steps to keep us clean and sober? Or is the function of the steps to have a spiritual awakening. Well, I think most of us would agree that the spiritual awakening is not going to happen if we aren't clean and sober. So some func- one of the functions of the steps clearly is to help us to get and stay clean and sober. But I don't think by any means that that's the ultimate purpose of the steps. And I don't think that's the ultimate purpose of step four, to just, oh, okay, this is all the bad stuff I did. I was bad, I'm bad, I'm sorry. No, it's much more than that. It's this examination of ourselves. It's this unearthing. It's this coming to understand ourselves, the investigation, to understand ourselves and, and you know, from a Buddhist view, to understand being a human, what it means to be a human, to understand the complexity of our minds, the way we're driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. And try to bring that into awareness, bring it out of the shadows, bring it out of the darkness, into clarity, so that we're not driven by those things. Not that we're ever going to, probably most of us at least, become completely unhooked from them, but that we don't promote them as ideals, which, in fact, you know, Society does, to a great extent, promote at least desire as an aversion, as as almost like uh, good motivations in life, like get rich, you know, 
or if you're a country, you know, take over another country, or you know, greed and hatred, right? And like, we we see, you know, part of our spiritual awakening is seeing that those things are are uh, not leading to any freedom, to any end of suffering. That they create more suffering. So, so to me, there's this dual purpose, maybe at least in the inventory, which is both to see my own particular personal story, but also to see the universal story in it. And that's the, we see in Buddhism, we talk about the, the uh, relative and the absolute. The relative is just the, that kind of, oh yeah, I'm an individual with a particular story, and that's, that's true on the relative level, but on the absolute level, I'm just a being or a ball, you know, a, a, an energetic uh, locus that's operating on different energies and principles that have nothing to do with that, with Kevin. You know, they're just, I, you know, the, the, my, this body is just doing stuff that just bodies do. I'm not, Kevin isn't running, I'm not digesting my food, right? You know, my stomach is to, just doing that. There's all this stuff just going on, and I'm not running. So, I, you know, I, I think it's important if we're going to uh, take this program, this 12-step program, to its, uh, to its goal, to the spiritual awakening, is, is to see these two levels. If we get caught too much in the personal level, where uh, we stay stuck in our story, you know. We see this. I mean, it's the, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, people talk about the, uh, the nature of meetings as being, oh, it's just people like, you know, saying the same stuff over and over. And you can see that on one level if that's, if that's done without wisdom, then, yeah, it's just this cyclical repetition where you're not really growing, you're not learning anything, you're just telling the story over and over. But the way I see it, it or, or the way I came to see that, is that what's happening is that the repetition of the same thing over and over, eventually we start to see it's the same thing. <laughs> All these separate stories are not separate. You know, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, where I got sober, I thought, I've got this unique story, right? And I can't wait until somebody asks me to lead a meeting and tell my story. Well, by the time somebody asked me to lead a meeting and tell my story, I realized that my story wasn't unique in the least. And that was one of the elements of freedom that I came to from hearing other people's stories over and over, because... You know, every story is the same. What it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, right? We have this archetypal description of the, the addict's path. And it, by seeing that, we're stepping out of the personal part of it. We tell the story to bring out, you know, there's the particulars of, of the different individuals. But we're, what we're meant to understand, I believe, is that it's all the same story, it's the story of, if you will, greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, which is the story of addiction. Also the story of the human race, but you know, we're not here to judge them. 
or us or whatever. <laughs> so this balance, I think, between the personal and the universal, between the relative and the absolute, a really important thing to hold. Uh, if we get too caught in the absolute and we stop seeing, we can stop taking responsibility for the particulars of our relative story, of our personal story. You know, that, that was a delusion that I got into before I was sober. And I, you know, where I had this guru, some of you have read One Breath at a Time, where this Ananda, uh, so-called, I don't know what his real name was, um, who kind of promoted and encouraged me to think uh, of myself as already enlightened. <laughs> it's very convenient when you're already enlightened because, you see, when you're already enlightened, everything you do is just enlightened. <laughs> and so if you're drunk, you're just like... En- drunk, enlightened drunk, you know. <laughs> and, you know... Any kind of behavior can be justified in that way. And as funny as that sounds, the way I characterize it, we know that there are many spiritual teachers in, across traditions who have used that stance as an excuse for their behavior and their exploitative behavior. So, um, so yeah, that's the danger of overemphasizing the absolute. <laughs> It's all perfect. Nothing needs to change. Okay. Good. Um, So, morality, and so what we're seeing really in what what Bhikkhu Bodhi is talking about is is those two, is that relative and the absolute as well. He's talking about ethics as just a practical matter of how societies and communities uh, live together, and that that's the, I guess we could call that the more relative side, and then the spiritual side, which, but in practical terms, uh, uh, the, what, what he's talking about is, uh, when he's talking about mental purification, what he's saying essentially is how you live affects your mind states. And if you are trying to attain you know, these very high mind states or whatever we would call them, enlightened mind states, let's say, that if your actions are unskillful, or if they're harmful, if they're selfish, if they're destructive, that those actions are going to pollute your mind. You know, we can't separate our actions from our from our mental, from our mental states, from our thoughts, right? I mean, that's clearly, this is this is the case. That's you know, guilt, remorse, all of that, and and that uh, that that's the foundation for meditation. And it's one of the things, of course, I've been emphasizing for a long time in my teaching, and one of the reasons why I like working with people who have worked the steps because they have addressed these things. The the that mental purification, that that ethical purification or uh, behavioral purification that that has a positive effect on the mind, um, you know, because when you sit down to meditate, whatever's in there shows up, right? And 
So we have to be kind of careful in that. Um, I won't say more about that right now, but I want to take this into something a little bit more specific. Now, this is uh, Venerable Analio's book, Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Meditation. <laughs> and Analio is a scholar, both Bhikkhu Bodhi and Analio are, are scholars of the Pali language, the early the scriptures of early Buddhist teachings. Um, but this book, like many of Analia's, is kind of taking particular uh, discourses and then comparing them with ones that were in Chinese. And it gets somewhat technical, but there are some gems in here, often just sh- simple lines. Because uh, the, the book is about loving kindness and compassion, particularly, but, but the four Brahmaviharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. But here he's talking about compassion. He says, moral conduct stands in direct relation to compassion. In fact, moral conduct is an expression of compassion. Wow. Uh, he says, this implies that one who abstains from killing, this is further on here, it says, uh, one who abstains from kill, killing living beings thereby acts with compassion. Makes sense, right? You're not harming. The presence of compassion is to some degree also implicit in abstaining from other forms of unwholesome behavior. Refraining from theft, for example, can certainly be considered compassion activity, just as refraining from the type of sexual contact that inflicts harm on others. In this way, all physical activity that avoids the harm of others can be seen as an expression of the wish to, for others to be free from affliction and thus of compassion. So this is another take on the spiritual elements of morality. Right? That morality, again, is not just something like you, you want to be good and you, know, you, want to, you don't want to get in trouble or you, you don't want to be guilty or you, you're afraid your karma is going to be bad or whatever, but it's that it actually, oh, by not harming, it's an act of compassion. I, I, I find that really inspiring because I don't have to do anything special. You know, so often I feel, well, okay, I'm lazy, I admit that. But, but so often I feel that the spiritual teachings imply that we have to kind of take on this new identity and learn all these new practices. You might even have to get new clothes, you know, like scarves and things. You know. I mean, you know, you go on a retreat, well, I've got to have a shawl because I'm on a retreat. You know, uh, you've got to get the right shoes. Anyway, uh, but, but the idea that really just following these precepts I'm already being compassionate. I, I find that, oh, that's kind of a, a source of joy for me. It's like, wow. You know, have, have you ever been to one of these classes or workshops where the teacher says, think of the last time you did something kind for someone? And I'm always like, oh. <laughs> really? Like, I don't know. I made breakfast for my daughter. Does that count? You know, it kind of, I never feel like I'm, you know, that I'm really living up to what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to have done, you know, been to the homeless shelter and 
on something. So when I can get some, you know, feel like I'm getting some points for just being myself, you know, that's very freeing, you know. Okay, yeah, because I follow these precepts. And I follow the precepts more, not so much because I'm a Buddhist, but because I'm an alcoholic, you know. Um, you know, when I took a searching and fearless moral inventory, I really kind of was like, oh, right. I need to change. And this is another one of the things that people outside the recovery world don't understand. That recovery, besides being a spiritual state, is also a moral state. That people who get clean and sober don't just stop that behavior. They also stop lying, cheating, and stealing. And hopefully acting out sexually. And many other things that we kind of are part of this moral inventory. It doesn't say it in the steps exactly. We have this word moral, so it's implied. But it was one of the main things that I came to understand from recovery. And it's almost implicit. You know, it's, it's not even really, I don't know how explicitly it's stated. Uh, I mean, certainly when you read the 12 and 12, Bill Wilson's book, there, it, it goes into that somewhat. But, uh, you know, again, that we get this foundation through recovery that's a, that's a spiritual foundation. We don't do it in recovery because we're trying to be spiritual. We're do, most of us probably do it in the beginning because we don't want to screw up again. We don't want to drink and use. We start to realize that those behaviors were intertwined with our addiction, lying, cheating, and stealing. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, either you're loaded and you act out, or else you have to steal something to get loaded. You know? So it kind of, you know, it kind of works in both ways. And, and the, th- the thing is, it's interesting, I remember a guy at a, a meeting early in my program who said, the difference between alcoholics and addicts is that addicts have to break the law every time they get high. You know? But the truth is, I, when I dr- drank, I usually drove. So I was breaking the law anyway. Not to say that I wasn't usually taking drugs when I was drinking too, but anyway. The, you know, we, in order to be an addict, you have to be immoral, you know? You kind of have to break the law. And, you know, once you've kind of broken the law, and you're, you're kind of like, I'm an outlaw, you know. I'm like, it's cool. Oh, yeah, fight the power, and, you know, <laughs> stick it to the man. It becomes a great justification for a lot of other sleazy behaviors, you know. So this, you know, this recovery, we have these, these, you know, levels, I think. I think that, you know, our initial dive into this is just cleaning up this act, our act and, and, you know, trying to get off, you know, and, and stay clean and, and deal with all that. And, that. and I know that's not easy. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously, most people don't even make it. Right? But from the other side... 
I, if I can say I'm on the other side, I mean, it's not, I don't mean that like, oh, I could never drink or use again. I just mean like from way down the road from that early struggle, it looks to me like there's a whole lot more to this process than just, I'm just going to not drink and use, as I said. So, a little bit more from Analio. This is another one of those books that you're kind of like, I've been reading this for a couple of years. So. Uh, and this is, of course, the chap this chapter is called Practical Instructions. So, you know, that's the one I'm like, okay, give me that. It's pretty much the same thing he's saying. but And he's referring to these ancient texts, the Madhya Agama. The passage from the Madhya Agama parallel to this sutta, which I translated in chapter one, makes it quite clear that moral conduct provides an indispensable foundation for successful meditation practice of the divine abodes. Divine abodes, living kindness, loving kindness. Oh, living kindness, that's my book, I'm sorry. <laughs> loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Moral conduct provides an indispensable foundation for successful meditation practice. And you could stop there, but of the divine abodes particularly. Here, compassion expresses itself in abstaining from activities that harm others. And then he says, okay, in combination with kindness, through bodily, verbal, and mental activities, this sets the groundwork for formal practice. And at the same time is how meditation practice expresses itself outside of actual sitting. So what I'm, the way I understand this, and I'm I'm not sure I'm understanding it properly. I have to be really careful. But my understanding is that he's saying that moral conduct is how meditation practice expresses itself outside of actual sitting. It's interesting. Again, something I've never heard. Uh, I, I mean, I've heard sort of generally that idea. But this is like, you know, one of the leading scholars of, of Buddhism in the West. And to say that not mindfulness is how you practice, you know, out off the cushion, not by any special activity, but by following the precepts, by acting with morality, that's your spiritual practice off the cushion. Again, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, one of my uh, goals in teaching is to demystify spiritual practice and make it seem more more natural and organic to our lives rather than, as I say, this special activity that we have to go off to do. I mean, it, there's tremendous value in going off to do spiritual practice, to go up the hill and take a retreat, for instance. But, you know, we can't spend our lives there. Um, so the question always is, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I carry this practice? And, and certainly the teachings on mindfulness suggest that we should try to be mindful all the time. 
definitely a, a, a worthy enterprise. Uh, but I, I also find it really helpful to think, wow, if I could just not ha go around harming, then that ha not harming is actually compassion. And while that might not seem so significant in our daily lives, in ordinary circumstances, when we look in a broader way at the world and we see how much harm is being done, you know, how many people, by breaking one or more of those precepts, are harming people, we realize, yes, non-harming is a great act of compassion. So a few minutes left for anybody to comment or, or ask a question if they have one. John, hi. Hi. Andy will bring you the microphone if you don't mind. Thank you. Hi. That was, uh, I love the way you linked moral kind of practice and spiritual practice because that's what came together for me in recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I feel like the moral practice, and I don't know how this relates to mental purification, creates is a, that sense of interconnectedness. That if I harm you, I'm also harming myself. And vice, you know, whoever I harm does harm to everyone. Yeah. And that part of the practice of sitting and listening to stories is, like you said, that sense of identification. Um, and that common, that thing that we have in common that connects us, which is our humanity and our spirit, and that they're not really separate. As you dig into one, the other one also becomes larger and more real, I think. Yeah. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. But the whole thing of all those things, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, have to do with kind of interconnection, our interconnection. That's right. That's right. And um, it's... I mean, I guess my moral for me has always meant right or wrong, a set yeah. of rules. Right. And it's really not, in recovery and in Buddhism, it's not a set of rules. It's about a way of life that connects me to, to everything and everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we see when, when the Buddha talks about uh, our conscience uh, that... It, what he's teaching us is to be, uh, by, by teaching us mindfulness, he's teaching us to be sensitive to our inner life in a way that when we act unskillfully, we can't help but feel its you know, imbalance. And, and so, as you say, it's, it's not then about right or wrong, it's about suffering. Right. This is what the Buddha always says. Right. It's not. He's not teaching morality for the sake of morality. He's teaching morality because harming people creates suffering for you and for the other. And you won't. But you can only know that if you're aware. Which is, of course, another problem with being loaded. You know, is you don't notice when you're harming yourself and others. You're, you're unconscious. So mindfulness uh, is intertwined here uh, we can't really act out of compassion if we're not aware you know? so and, and that 
that motivates us to be compassionate if we're aware because we feel you know we're touched by by the pain of others and by our own pain awake to it you know it's it's uh, the challenge of both Buddhism and recovery I mean why are we addicts in the first case place because we don't want to feel right and one of the reasons people have such a hard time establishing their recovery early on is because they can't handle the feelings, right? I mean, obviously, this is the why people relapse, is they don't want to feel the way they feel. And, and then here we are, here's the Buddha saying, oh, let me teach you how to feel more. You know, like, uh, do I need to do that? But there really is no choice once we see that this is what life is. You know, this is what life is offering. Life is offering an authentic experience that includes pain and joy or a numbness, you know, where we don't get either. Two bands back there. Hi. Um... I'm trying to develop this perspective of the fourth step as an exercise in mindfulness, um, as a, an inventory of right speech, right action, right livelihood, um, and the idea that uh, in order to let go of things I'm carrying, I have to know what they are. Maybe someday I'll be able to let go of things that I don't know I'm carrying, but I'm not there yet. Right. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, you know, trying to trying to uh, uncover memories and of what exactly I did while I don't remember what I was doing, um, and uh, but also uncovering memories that have to do with the causes and conditions. Um, and so mindfulness is the foundation of so many things. Mindful of my speech in an, in an attempt to address the, uh, assess the wisdom of my speech, you know. Um, and, and I think this perspective is helpful for me because not only does it help me uncover uh, the problems that I have, but also mindfulness can help me find the good things that I have as well. That I can, uh, if I can bring to mindfulness the ways in which I do accomplish right speech, the things that I did well, and uh, and and bring some positivity to the four step. Yeah, thank you. That's well put. I'm wondering if you can comment. Um, uh, let's try to put this together on uh, the. Refuge recovery framework where inventory is around the four noble truths. And I, I find myself wondering about um, how that relates to non-harming, too, because it seems to me it's a historical karmic inventory. And the focus is on understanding. Um, and yet, you know, you can't rush it. Um, so I, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I don't know a lot about uh, refuge recovery. Um, about that, I mean, I, I read the book, but I don't remember 
most of it. Um, it was a couple years ago. Um, so inventory of the Four Noble Truths, is that what you said? Yeah, that's the framework. All right. Um, let's see if I can make something up. Uh, I, no, I mean, so, so to me, mindfulness meditation is an exploration of the first three of the Four Noble Truths. I'm aware of suffering. I see where it comes from. I see what happens when I let go of it. So that's the first three, we could say. Um, and I could say, and I realize that my capacity to do that is dependent upon the fact that I've been working with the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that, that's kind of my orientation. That's how you understand it, yeah. So, yeah, and the thing is that our relationship our relationship to that process is, is kind of what I was talking about earlier about struggling with when you notice things in your mind, like fighting with yourself, judging yourself. We have to be really careful that that inventory doesn't become judgmental of ourselves. Um, because, you know, suffering and the cause of suffering are just so deeply conditioned in us that it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this inventory or I'm going to be mindful and then I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to have any more greed, hatred, and delusion. You know? um, certainly, the practice and the path is about reducing those. Uh, but, as I said before, I think what's more achievable than getting rid of those things is shifting our relationship to them so that we, again, don't think that desires can be satisfied or that pursuing desires will bring us satisfaction. And we don't think that getting rid of discomforts will resolve our problems and make us happy. So we're not... And so what I'm talking about is right intention, right? So if we... Most of the world, their intention is to satisfy desires and get rid of pain. And the, a dharma, dharmic view is to... Is that those, that's exactly the opposite of how you find happiness. Uh, and so just having that view, then the inventory is just, well, I wouldn't, don't think of it so much as an inventory as just present moment awareness. We see desire arising, we let it go. We see aversion arising, we let it go, rather than we see desire arising and we chase after it. Uh, so that, that to me is the, the 
basic value of that. Ultimately, you know, the, the teachings say that you know we can uh, in the in the Metta Sutta, you know, being freed from all sense desires, one's not born again into this world. So there's this this ideal, but uh, until we get there, just to shift our intention uh, is a good way to use that four noble truths as a integrated into your life and that insight into that into your life so okay that leaves us one minute so let's close with a little uh, dedication Traditionally, we say that we practice for the awakening of all beings and we dedicate the merit of our practice to that awakening. That can seem like an unattainable goal or it can seem like an abstract intention. But when we understand that our morality is actually an act of compassion and start to see that our practice is in the service of freeing beings from suffering. So maybe we be aware and appreciate our own morality and the way it frees people from suffering, the way it limits the amount of suffering that's being created in the world. May we take joy in that. And may that joy spread to touch all beings. Well, thank you so much for coming this evening. Please be careful when you ride home. There's people who aren't as sober as us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.